Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Julia Gossard. Mothering is as old as human existence, but how has this most essential experience changed over time and cultures? What is the history of maternity, the history of pregnancy, birth, the encounter with an infant? In Mother is a Verb, Sarah Knott creates a genre all her own in order to craft a new kind of historical interpretation. Her book brings the past and the present viscerally alive. As a history, Mother is a Verb draws on the terrain of Britain and North America from the 17th century to the close of the 20th. Not searches among a range of past societies from those of the Cree and Ojibwe women to tenant farmers in Appalachia, from enslaved people on South Carolina rice plantations to tenement dwellers in New York City and London's East End. She pours over diaries, letters, court records, medical manuals, and items of clothing. All the while, she explores and documents her own experiences alongside these historical artifacts. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sarah. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Julia. Um, I think that a bit of formal introductory introduction is necessary for our listeners. Sarah Knott is a British-born historian and writer, an associate professor at Indiana University, and a research fellow of the Kinsey Institute. She's an expert on two main topics. The first is the Age of Revolutions. She published Sensibility in the American Revolution as her first book and is now examining the many witness accounts of the American, French, and Haitian revolutions. I'm particularly looking forward to that as a historian of this time period. The second topic is the history of maternity, Mother is a Verb, an Unconventional History. A memoir and history of pregnancy, birth, and the encounter with an infant was first published to wide reviews in 2019. Not has received fellowships from the Andrew M. Mellon Foundation, the Rothmere Association Institute, and the Oxford Center for Life Writing. She has written for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Guardian, and Times Literary Supplement, and discussed the history of maternity on BBC radio and television. As a former editor of the American Historical Review and a member of the editorial board of Past and Present, she is especially interested in how we write and for whom. So let's delve right into Mother is a Verb. Sarah, your book is really in a genre of its own. After all, its subtitle is An Unconventional History. It combines (laughs) history, material culture, anthropology, and personal memoir into one to really examine the history of mothering and motherhood across both place and time. What inspired you to write this book in this way? So that's a lovely question because the book really came from the most immediate of experiences, which was uh, lying uh, awake in the middle of the night, sleepless with first one and then a second child. And wondering why I didn't, in fact, know the history of experiences exactly like those. Um, So I was already a historian. That was my day job. And really, the book emerged out of those nighttime experiences of trying to make sense, really, of of what it is to to be pregnant or to birth or to um, have one's daytime and nighttime dominated by the need to care for an infant. Absolutely. I think that that's probably something many historians have found themselves in a similar position, experiencing something in life and wondering, wow, what is the history of this experience and that first hand account in that way? 
That's right. And I was a, you know, I was a feminist historian. So I was particularly uh, chagrined that I didn't already know the history to these kinds of very visceral bodily experiences. And fortunately, I was tenured and I kind of gave myself the opportunity to figure out how one might approach such a history. Yeah, and it's definitely an unusual one in that capacity. Did you always think that you were going to include aspects of memoir there? Or did you approach this maybe more as a history of pregnancy and maternity from the outbook? You know, I was at that point, I was saturated in maternal memoir. I was reading um, in a tradition of writing that emerged really in the 1970s with the women's liberation movement. And I was finding in the uh, experiences of literary women writers sort of hugely cathartic, a huge catharsis, really. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, going back to Jane Lazar or Adrian Rich, uh, all the way through to a writer like Maggie Nelson in our own day. And, and um, so I was hugely uh, pleasured by reading in that tradition maternal memoir. And when I first started thinking about writing the book that I wanted to read, or the book that one might want to read in such a situation, I wanted to bring forward some of the pleasure of that genre. Um, so that really was the opening approach, I, that I thought I would move between memoir and history as a way of communicating to a reader. And then as I got further into that, I realized that it wasn't just a mode of communication, it was also a method, and that I was asking historical questions that um, hadn't been asked before, and I was um, arriving at historical interpretation in a, in a new way, and then producing a, an original kind of interpretation uh, in consequence. Absolutely. I think that knowing, you know, you were involved in this reading really helps kind of unfold the memoir and some of your arguments that you present in this book really well. Um, You know, Mother is a Verb is not just the title, but it's also your central thesis statement in many ways within this book. And what can you provide a little bit of explanation to our readers of of what that means to you? Of course, without revealing too much about the book itself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're so right that it is a a thesis statement of sorts, isn't it? Um, I suppose that the the history that I felt we already knew was the history of changing ideas about maternity, uh, really changing prescriptions about maternity, right? So the rise in the 19th century of a very sort of Victorian sentimental uh, idea of the doting mother whose sort of sole occupation was to tend her tender infant and the way in which that ideology sort of crashed and burned in many ways with um, the women's liberation movement of the late 20th century. So there's a sort of a story of changing ideas that I felt that we knew fairly well, that we knew what motherhood was as an ideology or as an institution, um, but that we knew really much, much less about the just ordinary uh, daily experiences of maternity, the bodily experiences. And it was really that history. It was the history of mothering as a set of activities always being undertaken among other activities. It was that history that I was interested in pursuing. I think that's interesting what you say too in thinking about that this is the prescription because a lot of what you discuss in this book is about kind of this prescriptive practices that I mean I'm sure dominated much of the mothering guides and mothering advice from, you know, the 1950s onwards with Dr. Spock and the like that happened there. That's right. And there's a whole tradition of how-to guides that do indeed focus particularly on what, you know, certain kinds of privileged mothers ought to do with certain kinds of privileged infants. Mm -hmm. So there's there's quite a sort of weight of prescription for us to um, try and throw off, really, if we're going to get at ordinary experiences of the present day or indeed of the past. 
Absolutely. And and I think that point that you make in terms of um, sort of the normal everyday experiences, something that you said that really resonates with me repeatedly throughout this book is that you, you point to mothering not being considered equal throughout history. Um, you point to mothering while enslaved, for instance, and you argue that the demography of mothering is a great example of how the history of motherhood has long focused on those what you call privileged mothers. And mm. I thought given the current day conversations about privilege in regards to race and socioeconomic status, this was a particular poignant and and keen observation there. And I'm wondering if you could just discuss this a little bit more for our readers, if we could talk about this a bit. Well, that's lovely. And I think here, I the people I learned from were really black feminist theorists, um, figures like Patricia Hill Collins, who, you know, looking out from Cincinnati in her late 20th century moment, Said, you know, the, the notion that motherhood is a sort of single occupation is really a white middle class notion, uh, not part of her community at all. And uh, that, in fact, far more typical um, in the African-American past and, and her present were forms of what she called other mothering, one word. That is to say, um, people who were kin, but uh, or sometimes even not kin, but not the birth mother, who were also taking a part in childcare. And in fact, if we go back and look historically, that fact of other mothering, I think, is really the historical norm. You know that our notions of a kind of male breadwinner family with a with a capital M mother figure who's at home tending an infant is really historically exceptional, um, and only to be found in times of in certain demographic groups in times of prosperity. So if we sort of dislodge that idea, then we arrive at a much more uh, various and I think probably more interesting history of these ordinary experiences. I I think so, too. I mean, teaching students about this experience of being a woman in early modern Europe. I mean, that's my particular Mm -hmm. my particular field and topic. And you're thinking about these children that, you know, were attached to the hip while the mother was busy doing work. You think about slave women on plantations who would often have to attach their babies to their fronts or to their backsides to continue working in this way. It's It's a really different experience of motherhood than our traditional sort of 20th and 21st century American or Eurocentric view of motherhood in that capacity. Yeah, very well put. And I and I, I think trying to recapture those more foreign experiences is our job, isn't it? When we look back and try and think about the past on its own terms, and also to try and grapple with our with our present day, where you know there is no sisterhood of mothers, there's no essential experience, and often individual mothers' self interest is diametrically opposed to other mothers' experiences. I mean, we can see this most clearly in the past, really, with the role of the wet nurse, right? So a, a person who you know, leaves her own baby to one side in order to be employed or indeed as a slave coerced um, in the nurture of another person's child. I and mean, that, that figure of the wet nurse distills the point quite crisply. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think another thing that you you bring up really well is that there is privilege within the archive itself too. I mean, I think you you point to these numbers about mothering and you say, but this only tells a very partial and very minimal story. And that is the story that was written down. That's right. And one of the dilemmas with this book was to think about what archives might even begin to generate a very visceral history. So even among the sort of thousands and thousands of letters we have from 18th and 19th century white middle class women, there are still relatively little that actually tell us what it was like to birth or to be with a small child. You know, both hands are needed to look after the baby. Um, And so I had to get very creative in terms of finding the kinds of shards of evidence with which one might begin to generate 
an interpretation of the past. And I was interested mm-hmm. also in asking questions that we don't often ask, like, can you give a history to the experience of being continually interrupted? You know, can you give a history right. to, to sleep? You know, these, these were the kinds of questions that came up because I was in the throes of looking after an infant that I think just wouldn't have come up if I had been uh, exclusively focused on the historiography and what we already knew. Um, and so it was, a, it was a different sort of starting point. And then it was mm-hmm. a different set of archival dilemmas that, that ensued. I think that's very interesting what you say, and, and you describe that really well in your book, that experience of of being sleep deprived and having your your um, life really split up into what I think you call the first sleep and the second sleep, you know, that you have there when, when you're caring for a, a baby and, and infants in that capacity and that you're living a much different life, but it's actually probably much more common than we talk about than, than we assume in the 20th and 21st centuries. Yes, we inherit this fantastic historiography of sleep that essentially says something like there's a grand narrative about sleep. And it's that in the past, um, people slept in two phases, you know, first night and second night or first sleep and second sleep, uh, and that they might be up between those two periods of sleep. They might be up to pray or to have sex or to feed the animals outside. And that uh, with the rise of industrialization and with electrification, Uh, those practices died out and now we sleep we expect to sleep in some kind of eight hour stretch and that that's an incredibly modern notion you know that we may feel it intensely as natural and what we crave (laughs) but it's an entirely modern notion and so lying there in the middle of the night I I felt a certain kind of kinship initially with all those (laughs) early modern folks who were up in the middle of the night until I thought actually hold on this big narrative doesn't really hold for all those adult women who were spending so many years of their lives tending um, infants and small children who don't sleep by basically you know if only they did um right so I ended up having to sort of revisit that big big narrative and say and, and get circumspect about it really um I mean I think what the narrative does is open out for us the fact that sleep has a history and then we can start to think more closely about well, what did it actually mean if you were a you know Puritan New Englander or um you know an African-American servant turning up in the early hours of the morning to tend the child of her white middle-class Victorian uh, employer. You know, that these are extremely various experiences of sleep and of the night. I think that this issue of sleep too kind of goes back to that idea of privilege again that that you were talking about in your book, because I often think about the eight hour, you must get eight hours of sleep a night. And I'm sitting there going, you know, there's an entire group of people where this is impossible for not mm. only mothers, but those who have to work two or three shifts or who, you know, even the junior academic has to stay right. up, mm-hmm. you know, publishing in this capacity. And so I have to think that, that that's an interesting dynamic there where you talk about not only mothering in terms of this privileged connotation, but that sleep also, I think, connects there in an interesting way. Well, and what better expression of power than the ability to get to sleep or to insist that yes. other people break their sleep for you, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that gets a power in its most physical dimension, doesn't it? There's a wonderful Absolutely. Um, mid-18th century poem by a washerwoman called uh, Margaret, uh, called Mary Collier, excuse me, and she um, complains exactly about the fact that she and her female peers do not get as much sleep as the male uh, laborers who've been bemoaning their lot. I mean, she's quite categoric about this, that, and in fact, our whole notion, I think, that women sort of worked less hard than men in the past needs needs revisiting, not just uh, mothers, oh, yes. but uh, women of all kinds were um, performing all different kinds of labor, burbing in different mm-hmm. ways and uh, getting not as much sleep as they would have liked. 
Yes. This reminds me of uh, an article that I read in the New York Times not long ago about uh, a, a husband complaining about the fact that he was being, um, you know, insisted to not sleep the same amount that he had been before mm. the baby was born and how, you know, he was thinking very carefully about these gendered roles of parenting and whether or not they were equal and should they be equal and have they been equal in the past. And so it really resonated with me, some interesting historical continuities there that mm. we're having these same conversations and these same experiences hundreds of years later and, and what fabrics that makes about human existence. Yes. And I, I found myself thinking a lot about sort of who is in the house and when. Mm-hmm. Right, because I imagine that early yes. modern children, having grown up in scenes in which sleep was disrupted and it was female labor to soothe, um, yes, right. Whereas, I mean, I think our experiences in the present day is, is that we grow up in sort of two generational households uh, that we often come to parenting quite late, and that it is an astonishing shock to realize that what is going to sacrifice sleep, not just for the first few weeks, but actually over a course of years. You know, there's very little about the contemporary workplace that recognizes that fact, I think. Absolutely. And I think that we're starting to have those conversations with more honesty and with more openness in the workplace. But again, we are still dealing with quite a bit of um, oppression and stereotypes of of women's labor and what's really important. And can you make a quote unquote sacrifice Mm. to have a career and have a child? So I think that it's an interesting way that your book is able to touch on a number of these modern topics by giving some historical context to each one of these. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's, that was certainly my aim. I mean, I, I was not looking to the past as a sort of place of prescription or of comfort. Mm -hmm. I was certainly looking to the past as a way of really blowing some fresh air on some quite difficult issues in our own times. And also from the sense that maternity is kind of up for grabs in our present moment, you know, that, that, yeah. uh, yeah. (laughs) On the one hand, we have this, this huge residue of, sentimental ideas about mother-infant bonds and extraordinary high expectations of mothers in the here and now. And on the other, we have a sense that maternity is a moving target because there are new kinds of figures on the cultural landscape, right? Whether it's gay couples working with surrogate mothers or trans men figuring out whether or not they want to chest feed or new fathers uh, taking paternity leave for significant lengths of time. I mean, in all these ways, there's a sense in our present moment that maternity is in some sense up for grabs. Yes. I think that that brings me into another question I wanted to discuss with you a little bit. Um, As I mentioned, I'm an early modernist, and I often teach on gender and history of sexuality to my students in the 17th and 18th centuries. And I found your anecdotes of menstruation and quickening very helpful explanations on how the meaning of pregnancy, menstruation, even sex, uh, are really changeable and mutable across centuries. For instance, on page 33, you mentioned, quote, the absence of menstrual periods, such a familiar sign in the present, was not always the first or clear proof of pregnancy. And that statement is something that I try to get across to my 21st century students every time we start talking about pregnancy, Mm. about contraception, all of those different issues, and that in the past, these signs that we take as being um, clear signs of pregnancy just weren't there in the ways in which this changes. Oh, you're lucky students. I mean, that, that seems exactly right to me, that often it's exactly those experiences that we presume are the most visceral, physical, given, essential, natural, that it's exactly mm-hmm. those experiences that seem, in fact, the most various. 
Um, yes. And I've, I, I mean, found I, that breathtaking. I, it exceeded my expectations when I was trying to give a history to, you know, to the experience of feeling an infant quickened for the first time, which you would right. think was, you know, extraordinarily, um, has an extraordinary potential to be very transhistorical. And yet if you stop and reflect on what, what quickening has meant and does mean, it remains remarkably various. It's the variety that is more striking than the similarity in many ways. Absolutely. And, and that and that idea that we really do think in those singular terms is something we constantly have to break down and I think can help our students see how ideas about gender or sexuality can become fluid and really socially constructed in that capacity. I know when I present this, you know, a particular lesson to them where I start talking about the history of contraception mm-hmm. and the ways in which people were able to have at least some moderate control over their families through various family planning strategies. You know, the thing I always ask them is how would somebody know that they were pregnant? You know, yes. says, Oh, you know, a swollen belly. And I'm going, well, in the past you had malnutrition, you had, a, you know, various diseases that would cause edema in this way. So you couldn't always tell from looking at someone, um, you know, missing your menstrual period. Well, if you're not being fed properly or mm-hmm. you don't have the right kind of, nutritional balances, you might miss your period even today. So, you know, the history of the body, I think, is something that you were able to incorporate here really well. And then it brings to sort of the present here that the body is a site of historical interpretation. Yes. And I think what you and I have in common is that we think it's one of the most exciting sites of historical interpretation. Yes. <laughs> uh, to historicize the body is to do something really wonderful in terms of reimagining what the past may have felt like. Um, so when I think about early modern um, women's bodies, I think about what it might have been like to live inside a body whose sort of growing and shrinking would have ebbed and flowed um, fairly continuously, right? And especially mm-hmm. in times of high fertility. I and mean, if you go to you know colonial America, where um, the average number of children could be eight or nine, right? We're talking about an yes. entire adult experience in which I would imagine menstruation was fairly rare. Um and um, and in which reproduction was was felt and this sort of um, as a form of of growing and of shrinking again. Um, mm-hmm. so that sense that we have a sort of a moment of diagnosis and crispness just completely disappears. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, and I think too the, the the medicalization of pregnancy in the modern era is fascinating and, mm-hmm. and a real shift to how we've thought about pregnancy and birth and these different experiences for century and generations before, where it wasn't necessarily a medical diagnosis. It was just commonplace in that capacity that this was something women went through. And in many ways, it was, as you point out, and, and, and as others have pointed out with the history of pregnancy and midwifery, it was a female only space for quite a long time. It certainly was. I mean, it was certainly a set of understandings that were in women's hands, you know, that, 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 uh, a woman's pregnancy was largely in her own hands to diagnose and that it was it was a realm of women I mean hence some of the sort of misogynistic commentary about it right the very coined with the gossips that that group of women who would have helped um, a neighbor give birth right in the in the 17th century that's a pretty innocuous term and then it becomes uh, a term that gets sort of fraught with misogynist notions of tittle-tattle and gossiping behind men's backs. And it's a wonderful pointer to, the, to how threatening it could be in a very patriarchal society to imagine that there were realms of female experience and female authority. 
And this is something that I see really weaving your your work together here with all of these various anecdotes is that idea that you really are questioning what is patriarchal power, what are the ways in which women express power while pregnant or while mothering, and, and how did those power dynamics exist in periods in the past and in places where we haven't necessarily talked about the history of pregnancy before. And I think that's a really nice, um, another kind of argumentative strain that works through there that, that works together with your thesis that mother is a verb in that capacity. Mothering does exert some power. Yes, it does. And I think um, that when we want to think about power and power relations, we do very well when we look at actions and behaviours mm-hmm. more than perhaps when we look at representations and ideologies. You know, If we want to understand lived experience and the way in which power is enacted, we do well to think about verbs. I think that our conversation here brings me back to the chapter Generation that you wrote, where you discuss the sexual revolution and how it changed motherhood for many here. And and I found it very interesting how you are talking about the way in which the history of motherhood is not just about gestation and birth and then the nurturing of child and the the rearing of a child, but also about the sexual lives of women before Mm -hmm. conception. And I'm wondering if it would be fair to suggest that you say with the rise of sexual revolution, that in some instances, motherhood became a clearer, what we would call choice for some individuals, whereas before the sexual revolution, choice was a more fraught concept. I think that's a very helpful summary. I mean, I think it's it's the, really the women's liberation movement that gave us the language of choice for thinking about reproduction, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it's become so precious to us and so contested um, yes. as to be our key word when we think about women's reproductive lives um, in the here and now. So I'm very grateful for the uh, arrival of that notion of choice with women's liberation. But I And I also noticed that uh, I needed a different language if I was going to find, sort of find a point of access uh, mm-hmm. on women's lives before that moment, where I think choice is actually quite a sort of black and white, possibly even slightly consumerist term to use. Yeah. If we're going to try and recapture the sexual experiences of Um, of women in different times and places so we might want to move to a slightly softer vocabulary of preference or um, intimacy if we're trying to think about um, women's Mm. sexual lives before the women's liberation movement but I'm not even sure we really have a full-fledged vocabulary historical vocabulary for approaching it very successfully I was when I was writing the chapter on generation I was very struck that I was you know drawing upon all my wonderful colleagues in the history of sexuality but that how rarely in fact (laughs) the history of sexuality has been put in dialogue with a history of motherhood. And that seems which, like which a very peculiar. Like such a, yeah. It seems right. like such a peculiar and such like a natural combination that you would have there. Yet I think that this speaks to the history of, of women and of gender and the history of sexuality in the way in which those two things have oftentimes been separated and taken apart for various reasons within the academy and, and within research. I think that's right. They're, they're scholarships with different genealogies, right? That the history of mm-hmm. sexuality came out of a different liberatory aim um, <laughs> than the history of, say, women and work. Um, and so part of what was so exciting about adding to these historiographies as a researcher here in 2019 was to to bring those back into dialogue. And I mean, really, the the field of scholarship, in fact, that we haven't touched on that was enormously important to me was actually queer scholarship. I mean, I, I right. felt that in in the most second decade of the 21st century, the scholars who had the most faith that um, physical experiences in the past were highly various mm-hmm. were queer theorists, 
and queer historians yes. and I found them incredibly inspiring as I set out to give a history to what we more typically think of as very normal normed mm-hmm. experiences but they were the they were the theorists who I found most illuminating and most creative in terms of approaching the past and its physical variation and this is definitely a chapter for our listeners that I, I, I greatly suggest that you you look at is, is queer ideas in the clinic. And this is really one of one of the places where I saw you really invoke that queer theory to help readers see how mothering is often a performance in the ways in which people conform to that perm- performativity or the ways in which they push back against that too. Yes, I suppose always with ideology, there's a way in which one can push and pull rather than just acquiesce mm-hmm. or resist. Um, and in fact, I think that's in play throughout the book, really. The, the book, yeah. um, Fellow Travels with Queer Theorists in not taking anything for granted about the physical nature of experience in the past. To, so it mm-hmm. always tries to ask the question, what was actually happening? Um, yeah. And it is the, the chapter that you point to, the queer ideas of the clinic, is in some ways a reaction to the chapter that precedes it, which concerns yes. the history of how-to guides, right? Where I you yeah. know, go to the how-to guides to think about how knowledge is made and how do we know what we do? How do we know what to do? And I sort of uh, lay out some of that history of how-to guides and then I reach an impasse and I say, well, but I don't actually know what that tells me beyond a history of prescription and how would we start again mm-hmm. to think about what is a history of knowledge making and experience? Um, so that was a very satisfying pair of chapters Yes. Um, in terms of thinking about the gap between formal ideas and what ministers thought or what physicians thought and actually what people were doing on the ground, sometimes in dialogue mm-hmm. with those physicians, but actually often without any care for how-to guides at all. Right. And this is often you know, the perennial question that we look at with these sorts of prescription prescriptive guides is, yes, there were all of these, you should do this, this is how you do this, but is anybody actually doing that in practice? Or is that the ideal that's being upheld? Or is it just somebody's ideas of the ideal in that capacity? Yes. And I think as the genre emerges, it becomes uh, increasingly reformist. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to sort of 17th century, and we look at midwifery manuals, sometimes there we get glimpses of the capturing of ordinary practice. So, So a writer like Jane Sharp, um, mm. spends a great deal of time in her midwifery manual talking about birth. And then she has just a few pages where she says, well, this is the, you know, this is the ordinary way of looking after infants. And, you know, everyone knows this, but I'll mention all these different bits in case you don't know one of them. And you get a real sense of confidence there that, that this is how things are done. Mm-hmm. Compared to, say, you know, the physicians of the late 18th century who come in on the back of their experience in founding hospitals and really want to tell early modern women that they're doing it all wrong. They need to stop right. dawdling. Um, that this is the right way to do things. And it's a reformist agenda. And that reformism, I mean, the sort of sense that uh, there's something at stake and that women need to change what they're doing and they need to follow one set of prescriptions rather than another, that becomes mm-hmm. quite a defining feature of the genre all the way down to our present day, right? Where you can yes. sort of pick up any how-to guide and figure out where they fit on the left-right ideology uh, well, this is 
And and this is something that as I was reading your book, I was I was really reflecting upon the experiences of an individual in the 17th or the 18th century, let's say, sent to North America who becomes pregnant and is constantly pregnant and that she has very little places to look for for guidance other than the women around her, that even the existence of these how-to manuals, kind of coming back to that idea, is, is a privileged access point, that many of these women just simply didn't have access to this. And really, they're just kind of figuring it out on their own or asking their friends or asking people who lived in their village, is this normal? You know, what should I be experiencing? And that much of this was just a practice and and living off of the fly in many instances. Yes, it was a living knowledge and possibly the better for it. I mean, once it's hard not to respond um, with a feeling of being aggressed by many of these, the 19th century and early 20th century manuals in particular, right? Where white white suited doctors intone that babies ought to sleep for 22 hours a day and that you could do a baby a favor by not picking it up. Right. Um, Some really extraordinary ideas that get peddled as research-based cutting edge knowledge. Um, And I mean, I'm, I'm all for defending the the value of expertise here in 2019. And I think that uh, the long history of how to infant manuals may be the exception there that proves the rule. Right. Right. I, I, I'm just so impressed with how how many anecdotes you are able to fill this book with from a variety of, of different cultures, societies, time periods. And, you know, you have alongside 20th century British and, and American examples, you draw similarly from the experiences of enslaved women on plantations and, and pre-modern women. And I'm wondering, how did you approach research for this book, how are you able to draw that many different types of anecdotes? Mm. Well, of course, I suppose the original dilemma was that there were only anecdotes for any <laughs> group of women. Right. And there was a certain gift in that because it created or it allowed me to create a kind of level, level playing field between mm-hmm. those uh, women whose more privileged voices we have found easiest to hear and uh, those women who've left the least in the historical record. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my... My aim in writing the book really was to let go of grand narratives, um, to displace white middle-class women from the center of the story, and to assemble really by accumulation and juxtaposition and contrast a series of anecdotes that would illuminate the possibilities of experience in the past. And that sort of approach let me, you know, play very widely across Mm -hmm. a huge uh, terrain, not just of history, but of different kinds of historical source, depending on yeah. the question that I was trying to historicize. I think that, that this would be a great book for our listeners who maybe teach a historical methods or research course for graduate students to have their students examine because you've been able to draw really well from interdisciplinary sources. You have inter- material culture, you use some anthropology there. Um, that's very interesting in the ways in which you look at that through a historical lens, I think is is a real, real key part of your historical methodology in this work. I certainly was able to learn from historians in a huge variety of different sub-disciplines in what we do. And I felt very fortunate to do that, to, to have a sense of what historians who work on material culture are up to, or historians of sexuality, as we've already discussed. And um, I had quite a conversation with my publishers about the importance of adding that note on method at book's end because Mm -hmm. I felt it was really useful, uh, helpful for those of us who think about history writing as writing or historical interpretation as our jobs to spend some time noticing what the book's method was actually up to and to have a chance to sort of 
point up the um, scholars to whom I am indebted and to look around at mm-hmm. um, what the Butts method was about and what it affected. I think in many ways, you know, there's the saying that it, it takes a village to raise a child. And I, I think here, what you've you've proven too is, is that it's in some instances in historical research, it also takes a village that none of our research is necessarily individual. It's all collaborative in, in different aspects where we're reading other scholars, we're building upon their work, we're seeing how that fits into our own, um, our own arguments and our own lens, I think is a really interesting connection there. Well, and isn't that exactly right? And I think the dilemma for us or the the challenge for us is to figure out how we communicate being part of a community of scholars when we talk about history with a wider world. Yes, Uh, that's a big challenge, I think, in the 21st century. It is. And we inherit sort of forms of popular history writing that tend to assume that we have to tell big narratives. Mm -hmm. And that tends to evacuate the wider community of historians. But I think there is more flexibility out there in the ways in which we might write and the ways in which we might bring ourselves forward as, as members of a community of historians and a genealogy of historians. Yes. Because, of course, that's what we all are in our ordinary lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you've, you've done a really great way of showing how you are a historian, not only interested in the past, but in present experiences of individuals and how that will then shape the history of, of our own time period. You've given historians, you know, 100, 200 years now, an interesting interpretation, not only of your view of the past, but of your view of your present where you were having children and experiencing that as a professional historian. Mm. Yes, and in that I felt as if I was following in the path of some very particular historians, most especially Barbara Taylor, who wrote mm-hmm. about her experience of madness and uh, the 20th century history of treatments of the mentally ill all within one book. Uh, it's right. called The Last Asylum, and that was a real model for me in terms of how a historian might move between um, a historicized sense of her present day and history itself. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It looks like we are just about out of time, but thank you so much uh, for joining me today to get to chat about Mother is a Verb and to learn more about your research into the history of maternity and your genre of writing and you're interested in how we write and who we write for. Um, Again, just thank you. Thank you very much, Julia. And thank you also goes to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux for providing a review copy of Mother is a Verb. Head over to their website to purchase a copy of this book. And finally, thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm Dr. Julia Gossard, wishing you happy reading. <laughs>